Welcome to First Generation Burden, a podcast dedicated to immigrants and the creative community. My name is Rich Tu, and I'm your host. This is episode 69, season 8, and I'm super excited for this one. We have fashion designer Melody Asani. We recorded this one a few weeks ago, and she was calling in from Los Angeles, her home base, and the location of her iconic store on Fairfax Avenue. We talk about growing up in L.A. in a first-generation Iranian family, how she shifted from law studies to pursue her dream of creating her own label, and even moving to China to design her first sneaker. We also talk about being the women's creative director for Foot Locker, so big, big moves overall. Also, I get to geek out about her Fearless Jordan collab, and I think I uncovered an Easter egg. Was pretty stoked to ask about that one. Check it out. DM me if you think otherwise, but I think I uncovered something that no one's really uh, pulled out before. So stay tuned. Also, this is another collaboration with the OG magazine. Check out their issue five where there's a written version of this conversation. Link in the description. We are doing more of these. Also, don't forget to subscribe and drop a review. Helps the algorithm. Without further ado, here's a conversation with Melody Asani on First Gen Burden. Melody Asani, thank you so much for joining us on this First Generation Burn and OG Magazine collaboration episode. You are a designer, entrepreneur, and founder of your self-titled brand with the appropriate acronym ME with an iconic location on Fairfax in uh, Los Angeles, California. Also, you are the first women's creative director for the global brand Foot Locker, and your work has been co-signed by the likes of Serena Williams, SZA, Beyonce, Yara Shahidi, and most recently can be seen prominently in the series finale of Insecure on HBO. Melody, thank you so much for being here this evening. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, of course. Yeah, so I would love to begin this interview by asking you to tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from, and then we can just jump right into all the awesomeness that you're working on. Sure. I'm, um, I guess, a designer, a creative a thinker, I think just an overall creative spirit, I would say. And I'm from Los Angeles. I was born and raised here. Um, and was that the whole question? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it can really go off um, as far <laughs> or as short as you want it to. But yeah, I, I would actually love to hear about um, your your upbringing and growing up with Iranian parents and growing up in L.A., and hearing a little bit about your early, early days and also how you started your creative journey. Sure. Yeah, it, it was really interesting. I'm sure like most immigrants can relate. Uh, I was sort of growing up between two completely different worlds. My parents had just immigrated here uh, to the U.S. They actually met each other in the U.S. and got married here. And um, I was born a year after they were married. And I grew up in a very, very Iranian household where my mom was very much trying to hold on to all the things she left behind in her homeland. And at the time, there was a a really big revolution happening in Iran. So the writing was sort of on the wall that that like my entire family had sort of escaped the country with only the things that they were able to carry, like their belongings. And so they left like, uh, you know, all their property and everything behind. So they literally came to this country with nothing and uh, had no idea if they'd ever be able to go back to their home country, which is a trip. And uh, to this day, actually, they haven't been able to go back and I've never been able to visit, which is kind of sad. But so they were very much survivalists. You know, they were trying to hold on to as much as they could. So that meant that there was a little bit of a resistance in terms of acclimating to the culture. And meanwhile, I was, you know, as soon as I went to school, I actually learned how to speak Farsi before I learned how to speak English, even though I was born here in Los Angeles. (laughs) So I learned how to speak English when I went to preschool. And, um, you know, it it just felt like living in two worlds. Like I go to school and I learned about all these things in school. And I had friends that were into all these different sort of cultural things and like listen to certain types of music and watch certain shows and then I'd come home and it was like Iranian satellite TV or you know so it, it was really um interesting did you grow up with a 
within an Iranian community and like speaking Farsi and like um, amongst, you know, your peers within the group or was it still part of that in between two worlds in LA? Uh, it was in between two worlds. My mom did have some friends that weren't Iranian and actually for the very beginnings of my childhood, she didn't have, she didn't really have an Iranian community outside of my immediate family. So my grandma and some of my cousins and my aunt and uncle. So it was very, very, we were, we were fam, more family oriented. Um, but, you know, growing up, she's always had a, a Persian community that she's been really close to. However, I grew up as a, um, you know, uh, my spiritual practice was as a Baha'i and the Baha'i community was very, very diverse. So that almost kind of came in as a third element because, you know, I would go to Sunday school and, you know, all kinds of Baha'i activities, which I was really active in from a really young age. And when you went to the Baha'i Center, uh, you know, it was on La Cienega and Rodeo in Los Angeles, Rodeo's now Barack Obama Drive. I think the name was changed a couple of years ago, but um, it was super diverse. It was like everybody from every kind of background and culture. So you really felt a sense of belonging because nobody belonged, you know? So it was it was really interesting. And that, that I think in in my spiritual community is where I found myself most and where I identified most because there was everything there. And um, I liked that. It wasn't segregated or, or one thing. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I've been watching some of your, a lot of your content and also like uh, been reading about your connection to um, your Baha'i community. And also I, I'd love to hear about how that plays into your current thoughts about gender equality and also like your um, the the idea of being one humanity, because I feel like your work really, I, I, I we're jumping ahead just a little bit, but th- I think you just touched on something I did want to touch on. It's like, how, how did that community play into your current work and also your creative practice? Because I feel like there's, there's such deep connections there that, that really are visible. Yeah, I think that above all, it showed me from a very young age that, um, that the concept of world peace isn't utopian and like these concepts of oneness aren't philosophical that they're actually possible and that if you know we're we're able to i i think that each of us sort of needs some kind of spiritual walk and it doesn't matter what it is it doesn't matter what you worship or who you worship or how you worship. But I think um, just having the concept of something that's bigger than you, no matter what you want to call it, whether it's God, Allah, Jehovah, the universe, the ancestors. I mean, so many people have different names for it, but it's really important to, to have that kind of walk. And I noticed that, um, you know, that's something actually I was talking with my friend about recently is that um, it, 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 it introduced to me this concept of fellowship, which I feel ha- has kind of been lost in um, our society as of late. And I miss it. You know, it's this concept of getting together and having a greater sense of our individuality and being concerned about our collective, you know, our collective destiny and and what we do together and where we merge and um, working towards things like that in a, in a spiritual sort of way, because we're not just physical beings, you know, we have energy. If, even if you don't believe in the concept of a soul, if you believe in science, you know that we, we're energy in motion and energy doesn't disappear you know so you have to use that energy in in some way and so yeah we can i'm like i kind of don't know which way to go with this yeah no i <laughs> so big it, yeah absolutely no it's we're just really just scratching the surface on that i would love to revisit it um i would love to go back to your parents for a little bit like i read that your both your parents were artists 
and that your dad, mm-hmm. your mom was a painter and that your dad was an artist too. Um, and, uh, but they didn't find value in their art, at least according to some things that I read, but I would love to hear how you found that journey towards finding value in your own creative spaces. Um, I, I guess, apart from what you grew up to believe. Ooh, how I found it for myself. Well, it was difficult. I think that I hit a certain age and I, I have always been drawn to creative things. I've always created things my entire life. And I was always interested in music and dancing. And I paid really close attention to cultural things. Um, and I, I think it just hit a certain point where I realized where those things sort of merged for me. And because I was introduced to art and creativity from my parents' lens, I never thought of myself as an artist because they never mirrored that back to me because I was different than they were. So, you know, for my mom, she's a painter and she can spend months in front of a canvas and it's very emotional and romantic for her. And um, for me, it's not, you know, I, I don't have that skill and I never really wish to develop that skill. Uh, and in fact, to me, drawing and um, painting, except for the rare times where I really need it as a form of like a process, feels very technical to me. It doesn't feel like the creative part. To me, the creative part looks like something different. And so it wasn't until later where I realized that that was okay. And that just because I didn't know the technical things didn't mean that I wasn't an artist or that I wasn't a creative. It just meant that I was a different kind. And um, when I was sort of exploring all this, my mom actually told me, she was like, you're not an artist. Why are you pursuing design? Like, you don't know anything about blah, blah, blah. And I I think it was just because she considered herself an artist and she didn't know of anything different. And to some extent, to this day, she still doesn't know exactly what I do (laughs) because it's, it's foreign to her and how she grew up. What kind of stuff were you looking at, I guess, growing up? Um, uh, in high school and into college, like, you know, those formative years when you're just absorbing so many cultural influences, especially growing up in LA. And I read that you're a diehard Lakers fan with sports and also like your streetwear and everything. What were you, what were you consuming at the time? Um, like it, it, when you were, you know, in, in your most sponge like era? Well, I think I'm still in my sponge like era. I don't think it ever ends. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> But um, I don't know. I would notice things, I guess, things that I thought everybody noticed. Uh, Like, I remember when Janet Jackson came out with her 1814 and she was wearing that earring with the key in it. You know, to me, that was the most, like, revolutionary thing on the planet where I was like, how did she you know, like, it like boggled me. Or when I, you know, when I saw Big Daddy Kane come out with like an MCM, like a floor length leather MCM jacket that Dapper Dan had made that didn't even like, MCM hadn't made. And he just like took, found the fabric, the leather and had made it. It blew my mind. Or, um, you know, it, it was little things. Or like when I'd see, um I don't, it was it was just always little things, but fashion things were when Michael Jordan would wear suits, like these crazy suits with Jordans. Um, that was crazy to me. Um, and it was just things that I'd noticed uh, from a young age. Um, but I, I was consuming a lot like of of different kinds of shows and music. And I think the things that I was paying attention to were a lot of the fashion elements, but I think it was because I was really interested in how people express their personalities through their presentation, you know, like how things that they wore um, expressed that. And, you know, my dad passed away when I was 10 
And I went through like a really deep depression, but at the time I didn't know that's what it was called. Like I didn't have words for it. I just kind of felt like I was spiraling into nothingness. And um, so listening to people that had gone through struggle um, really, really resonated with me because I was going through my own personal pain and struggle. So I, I think that I was really drawn to, um, you know, people that were disenfranchised and didn't have a voice. And, um, you know, and after my dad passed away too, I think that we were kind of in a more vulnerable position because it was just my mom, a single mom with my brother and I. And we had so many different kinds of experiences where we would experience, you know, like stupid racial stuff or just like single woman stuff or just different kinds of things. So I think I was I was looking for certain things and um, music and TV shows at the time and uh, different kinds of cultural things really resonated or hit different notes for me based on that. Wow. Well, oh, thank you for sharing that. I think that that makes so much uh, sense and also, you know, provides a ton of insight into, into all the good things that were to come. I'd be curious to hear about how, um, how your time at the university of California and also pursuing uh, your, uh, a degree in women's advocacy and also wanted to be a lawyer earlier, early on, how you found that pivot and then eventually you found your way into the uh, Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. I think a, a lot of the background that you just laid, um, you know, helps set the stage for a, a lot of the strong, uh, bigger moves or all the big moves that you're making um, around that time in your life. Yeah. So, I mean, from a, from a young age, I think I was introduced to this concept of justice. And I think it was probably really set off after my dad passed away just because I had experienced so much at a young age. And um, I think that the community that I was around and that uh, the, a lot of the people that took me under and raised me sort of gave me this understanding of the world from a, a young age. And so I think that I found myself really wanting to be connected to the pursuit of justice in some way or another. And that's where law came in, just because it it was the only way, right? Like I was being raised in a very um, traditional household, despite the fact that I was exposed to all these other things outside of my house. And so I was like, okay, well, the only way to really fight for justice is to become a lawyer. I never thought that you could do that through design or through you know, anything essentially. Oh, go ahead. For me and growing up, because I had a similar thing where I almost didn't pursue my own creative journey. And then I went to Rutgers for communication psychology. I thought one day I'd just, I'd be sitting in a, you know, boardroom or business in a business setting with a suit and kind of like, you know, conducting business like an adult, quote unquote, whatever that <laughs> means. Like, I'd be curious to hear like, what, what was your vision for yourself at the time? Was it, you know, um, Melody Asani, the, the the social justice lawyer, you know, fighting for for you know moral causes. Like, what was that um, before you found your own path inward? Oh yeah, I thought I was going to change the world. I was, I, I had, I was, I was really lucky. I've been lucky my whole life because I've always had. Um, anytime I've been in the pursuit of something, I've had somebody around me that that's been in that arena that's really inspired me. And it was the same, like there is this guy that I was around and he was, had served on the tribunals for the Rwandan genocide and um, then was working at the UN. And it was like, he was like my superhero. I was like, this is crazy. He's literally, he's a lawyer, but he's representing a country, not even people. And so I was thinking that I was going to do that and that I was going to change the world. And I mean, it was so, I was like, I'm going to end racism. I'm going to end sexism. <laughs> and it sounds so stupid now, but, but that's actually a, a big reason why I dropped out because I, m my uncle had the best advice, which was to do internships. And so I interned on Capitol Hill 
and I moved to DC and I was um, at the Lawyers Committee for Human Rights and I did some stuff at the White House. And I was at the end of doing all these different internships where I literally, I went through every single kind of law. I was in private, I was in the public, I was in, and at the end of it, I was so disenchanted with the system that I was like, I can't, I, I was like, I don't want to do this. And I have to wear pantyhose. I couldn't, <laughs> I was like, this is. It was so, it was depressing. I came back home and I was actually depressed, um, which is why I dropped out of law school. Cause I was like, I, in theory, I want to do this. This is the work that I feel drawn to do. But if I wake up every day and go to a law firm, I will be depressed. Or if I go do this, do this work in this way, I knew that I would be depressed. And so that's why I dropped out of law school and I actually did get depressed because I had geared everything in my life in that direction. I had spent all my time and energy into this was a thing. It was almost like it was my identity and now I didn't know who I was anymore. Uh, so that was really hard. Is that around the time that you did your or had the experience of asking three questions to God every night? Was that around yeah. that time? Yeah, I would love for you to speak a little bit about that anecdote. I found it so fascinating and also just, you know, such a good overall practice in terms of centering oneself in the long term and finding your, you know, your, your base of energy. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, actually, I have to give credit to um, Julie Burns Walker. She is um, an, a medical intuitive, for lack of a better word, but I had had a session with her and she had she had sort of shifted my perspective a little bit um, because I was talking to her about this stuff at the time. And she was like, well, what if she's like, what if your idea or your connection to the, to the creator isn't actually yours. And I was so offended. I was like, what do you mean? It's like, that's, that's God. That's my God. It's who I, you know, like we have a thing. And um, she was like, yeah, but what if, what if you're worshiping a God that's not yours? And it kind of blew my mind a little bit. And so that's when I started doing some inner work around that. And it was really life-changing because I did realize that I was worshiping my mom's God. And I had never really done the work to get to know um like my own version of the creator and what that looked like to, to create your own relationship that you could have ownership over. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So I had, I had sort of like just taken on beliefs that my mom had, like maybe God is a man or um, so I wouldn't pray or I wouldn't do as much of a practice when it was around certain kind of things that I was ashamed of or um, you know, or it was the kind of thing where I was like, in the back of like in my deepest self, I was like, well, God's there to help, but he's not going to like really do stuff. You know, it was like, it's just, it's more of this thing where it's just this being, it's this presence, but you don't actually have relationship with it. And so um, that's when I started asking those three questions in my practice to God, because I was like, I was like, well, first of all, I need you to show me who you are to me as you really are, not what I think you are. Because I think I thought a lot of things about what God might be, and I don't think any of it was true. And um, the second question I asked was for um, God to increase my connection to him as he is, not as what I think he is or she is or it is. And um, the third one was to show me my path. I think those were the three. Wow. And do you think that they, it sounds like you were fulfilled in that, in asking those questions and you were also able to find or at least find interpretation of, of, of answers in that space. I was, I was. I think that's when um, everything kind of shifted for me because 
then I had a, a more clear connection between myself and my creator because it's so personal, right? For sure. Wow, that's really cool. Um, I would love to shift gears a little bit um, and hear about the how you started your brand, uh, the Melody Asani brand. Um, you found it in 2007, officially, at least on paper, that's what it says. What What were the immediate steps that you took to, to get there? I read that you uh, lived in China for a little bit in order to to create your first um, pair of sneakers out there, like such a meteoric shift. Like how, how had you found yourself in that comfort zone of being able to like take those risks? And also what, what did you learn at the time? Well, it took a, uh, it took a long time, even after I made all these realizations about myself and I had taken classes at art center and I was like, I know this is what I want to do. Even after that, I didn't start off with a brand right away. My friend and I, at the time started a store together. We had a little boutique store called June Concept Shop in Silver Lake. And we would buy other people's designs that we really liked and we would sell it. And um, through that relationship, we both realized that we were both closet designers that really just wanted to create stuff, but we were too scared. So we kind of- I love that phrase, closet designers. Yeah, (laughs) we had kind of taken that interim steps. So then we closed down the shop and I I tried to do all kinds of other stuff. But the truth is, I didn't really know how to navigate the field. I was like, okay, I know I'm a designer, but I don't have formal training. You know, I know how to use Illustrator now and I have some skills, but um, it was difficult to get hired. So I started interning for Creative Recreation, which was a sneaker company, which had just... Oh, yeah. Of course, yeah. I, of course, I remember Creative Rec. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. They, they were very, I remember at the time, and I used to work at Nike. I'm in their footwear design team. I've been a, these are actually my fiance sneakers aren't even mine. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, Creative Rec, I remember they were, they were very uh, lifestyle driven. And also I, I recall their, their patterns, the precision, of their patterns, also the, the perforation of the materials and having the, um, having a four foot strap, which I just always love the, the technical elements of them, very like skate driven. Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge Creative Rec nerd. Yeah, so that was cool. So Creative Rec had just started, like they were a couple months old and it was literally Rich who was the head designer there and his partner Rob who did all the marketing and they had one guy in there that did their sales and that was it. And so, they allowed me to come intern. So I'd drive to Anaheim every day and I would go intern in their, in their little office. And Rich um, taught me a lot about shoes and design. And I know that I knew that they were making them in China. And so I learned a little bit. I was like secretly learning things about the production process. And I was there for like six months and um, I was like, so when are you guys going to hire me? <laughs> and they did it. They couldn't. Um, and I also felt like maybe they didn't take me seriously. And so I, I was just so disheartened because I was like, I have these skills. And they had, they had used a couple of the colorways that I had come up with for their designs, um, but hadn't give me, given me credit for it or paid me for it. And so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to figure out how to do this on my own. I had saved up some money at that point and it was around 2007. And so I just started doing research and figuring out, I found out, well, all I knew at the time was that Guangzhou in China was like a city that made a lot of things. And I was like, okay, this is a factory city. And so I, I kind of found these factories all over the world Um, I found some in Mexico and and some in Italy and nobody would write me back or get back to me. I would like send them a design and I'd be like, okay, what's the sample fee? I'd learned some of the language. Um, And so I was like, okay, I think I just have to go there. And so I called a friend of mine who uh, was actually from law school And she had moved to China because she had gotten hired by a firm there. And I was like, hey, do you know anybody that lives in Guangzhou? And she was like, actually, I do. And so she connected me with this couple. And they were this incredible couple. And um, I was like, hey, 
um, you know, I, I want to come to Guangzhou. I'm a designer. I want to make my first shoe collection. And I'm just wondering if you guys can help me a little bit with like where to stay and what to do and all this stuff. And they didn't know me at all, but they invited me. They were like, you're welcome to come and stay with us and we'd be happy to help you. So wow. I was cool. So I went to China and I stayed with them um, for three months and I learned the entire shoemaking process and I found a couple factories that helped me and I came back and moved back home with my first collection. That is amazing. And then that, yeah, wow. What a, what a huge meteoric leap in such a relatively short amount of time. That's yeah. That's it, crazy. Was it was a big thing I did. That <laughs> <laughs> no, sounds really big. Um, so yeah, I would love to jump forward just a little bit too. Like, um, now, you, you know, you've collaborated with all the biggest brands like Reebok, uh, Nike, Air Jordan, of course, um, like, you know, with a very, uh, very famous collaboration. Now you're over here at, um, at Foot Locker, uh, with the Foot Group. Um, I'd love to hear some of the, some of the challenges of going from a, a self-owned brand where you have, uh, complete creative control to being the face of a global, um, athletic brand where, you know, I'm sure that there are a lot of different processes and, and, you know, uh, ways of doing things. So can you speak a little bit about that? Sure. Well, it's kind of like that thing where everything you say, you also have to say in a pandemic because everything has just been <laughs> so right, of course. upside down and all of that, that whole chapter of things have, have all happened in the last two years during the pandemic. So um, that kind of puts a whole layer of, something else on top of it but um yeah it, you know there's pros and cons on both sides of things i think that working with a big corporation can be difficult just because there's so many moving parts and um there's so many different as you know coming from nike there's so many different departments and uh, oftentimes those departments don't communicate with one another and so you'll be dealing with one aspect of the business but then there will be a whole aspect that you didn't even know about that affects all these other things uh, so that part is a little bit challenging especially in the role of a creative director because um, in in my definition of a creative director it's meant to co cover more of a holistic outlook of things it's not like i'm just touching product or i'm just touching um you know marketing it's it's sort of like everything yeah i like and, to think of creative direction as a you're you're a steward of the brand and, exactly. and you're, yeah and you're you're walking with it and sometimes you have to you know kind of kick it down the road and sometimes it walks you but you're really um you know it's a it's a it's a harder or difficult journey for those that are willing to really absorb the role. So yeah, kudos to you. You're doing such a stellar job. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's difficult. And, and because it's their first time having anybody in this role, I think it's been interesting because they're also on a learning curve. So it's not like I'm coming into a position that had been carved out. It's a new position and it's also a completely new endeavor or department for them to be working with their women's side in this way. So uh, before me, Foot Locker had never manufactured or produced any of their own goods. They've always carried other brands. So this is the first time that they've ever done any kind of manufacturing and production. And so that's been really interesting because I have more expertise in that department than they do. And so you know, working with just me, who's a little, you know, one person with like the entire departments and like having an entire chain of command understand something can be um, challenging. But with all that said, I mean, they're, they've done really great. And what I really appreciate about them is their willingness to always be better. And um, they never have an ego about anything or never uh, you know, it, it's never an issue. Like anytime I bring something up, I'm like, we have to change this. They're on it. Wow. So that's cool. It's, it's definitely a blessing having so much resource at your disposal versus coming from having your own brand where everything's very like limited. 
for sure. Yeah, just the, the power of the creative director. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I have a couple of really specific questions because me and Che are we're sneaker nerds, right? So I would love to talk about the, the Jordan collab a little bit and some of the specific details, you know, the asymmetrical coloring and also um, uh, the, the phrase around the midsole and also the Dubray. So mm-hmm. let me know if this is an Easter egg uh, or if this is, means nothing. But the okay. Dubray on the Jordan 1 collab, it's, it's permanently set to around 233. Is there a significance to that time or is, is that just an aesthetic choice for the placement of the hands? No, there is a significance and I'm forgetting. <laughs> um, Have you ever like, talked about this before? I, I want to know if I've discovered an Easter egg or not. No, you're the first person that's ever asked me actually, but there is a significance <laughs> to it and I'm forgetting. And I'm going to, hold on, I'm going to tell you right now. <laughs> no worries. We can, we'll edit out the pause. Yeah, we'll come back. Yeah, I saw someone wearing the pair just the other day, actually, at the um, at uh, second round, second round vintage over in LES. There are a lot oh, of, cool. Yeah, yeah. Also, also, I see a lot of um, a lot of men wearing that shoe, uh, wearing that pair too. I, I know I tried to get it. I'm a size 11 men's, and it, I oh, yeah, I, yeah. Although you know, I feel bad, and I don't like to by uh, women's specific stories because I don't want to take pairs out of the market. And I feel some type of way around like, you know, making pairs available to the, to the community that it's for too. But also I was like, <laughs> I just wanted them. But. I think after it's been released, it's all, you know, for go. <laughs> oh yeah. The quote. So the quote around the midsole, if you knew what you had was rare, you would never waste it. Uh, where is that quote coming from for you? Was it something that, that, was a part of your own journey or did you hear that? Like, where is that from? Yeah. So uh, again, um, my friend and I, Julie Walker, were having a conversation and um, we were, we were talking about uh, how we're so much more than just physical beings. We're souls or, you know, we're, we're energies. And she was telling me how our energy actually extends, I forgot how many feet away from us so that our, our presence sometimes actually enters a room before we do. And how different people have different sort of energies. And, and she was telling me this story about how she met this homeless man one time in South Africa. And she she didn't know why, but she always felt like uh, anytime she saw him, she like almost couldn't even make eye contact with him. Like she just kind of felt this reverence for him. And she was like, it had nothing to do with, it, it was just like his soul almost commanded that. And I sort of loved that because it made me have this deeper awareness or it made me think about different people that I would encounter. And there's just certain things about certain people and you can't explain it because it's not physical, but you feel it and they cause you to feel a certain way. And I think that that's our nature. And so it got us into this whole deep conversation about the difference between who we are and what we are and how it's so easy to identify who we are and to relate to who we are. Like, I'm a designer, I'm Persian, I'm a woman, I'm this, I'm that. And that's kind of what we um, pride ourselves on in this world. You know, we're just like, oh, I have this many things and this many accomplishments, but we never really seek the what. Like, and I think that the what is, it is the true essence of, what you are just by existing, like just by you waking up, just by you entering a room, like when you enter a room, what happens Do you? How do you change the energy? How do you contribute to the room just by being there, not by being whoever, you know? And so that was such an exciting statement to me because it really has nothing to do with what we accomplish here, but it's, it's that what that's so special because it's like, you know, I think of my husband, um, Flea, he's an incredible bassist. And a lot of people say he's the greatest bassist in the world, but the truth is he knows a lot of bassists that are way better than him. And 
And so I was like, well, what is it that makes you so special? And I think it's that what? I think it's the soul, like that thing that he brings to the base. Of course, he, he also plays it excellently and he practices every day and is dedicated to his craft. So I'm sure it's a beautiful, you know, combination of things. But I, re I really think that what you do is just a small part of it or and but what you bring to it like that essence of you like when you really tap into that that's the magic unexplainable thing that like that is like the true trueness of you so that was the the inspiration behind that quote like if you knew what you had was rare because that what is, that specialness is only yours um, you'd never waste it. You'd never question yourself and be think that you're not enough or you're not whatever enough. I love that. That's a that's an amazing explanation or an amazing context behind that quote. Super powerful. Um, I'd love to ask about tradition too. Um, so a lot of your work it challenges tradition, but also really respects tradition. Do you like prints, pattern, material? Like where do you find? that balance, you just spoke about the what and the what being like, you know, the kind of the thing that makes you super extraordinary, but where's your balance between respecting tradition and pushing towards progress in a lot of your work? Cause I love that so much of your work really pushes those buttons intentionally. Um, but also it, it feels like it calls back to something that, you know, that has history behind it. Yeah, that's a really great observation. I really love iconic, classic things and maybe they're just classic and iconic to me because they take me back to a special time or because they've they've maintained themselves in time for so long like they've lasted in time for so long um but i i do like to go back to certain iconic things and reframe them from a position of now so, uh, and a lot of it, it really is just me going back and going back to all the things that I really wanted, but then repurposing them for myself or people like me. So, for example, like a, a rugby, like I love a rugby. I think it's an iconic piece of clothing, but I never really liked the fit for me. You know, I, I mean, I liked it when I was like 14 and I looked like Method Man, but <laughs> now, <laughs> now I dress different and I, you know, I want it to have a different fabric and a different shape. And so, and because I think that women were never really factored in with a design like that. And so even with shoes, like I, I always wonder like, what would it look like if we designed sports shoes specifically for women that factored women in from jump versus like take an existing shoe and make it a woman's shoe because it was never really designed for a woman it was always designed for a man and now you're just like shrinking it or you know and so i, I really like doing that or questioning certain things like i remember this cross color shirt i had when i was a kid that says love sees no color and I re remade that shirt a couple of years ago and made it love sees all color because I, I, I hated that concept of not seeing color. Like, why wouldn't you see color? I want you to see color. I want us to celebrate each other's color, not act like we don't see it. So it, it's things like that that really are interesting to me. Do you think that a lot of your work is about making, and let me know if I'm phrasing this completely off, like, do you feel like a lot of your work is about uh, making new spaces within, for women, uh, within, uh, uh, I guess, the, the fashion world? Like, are you making, are you bringing a male or historically male references like Jordan's or even like, you know, Burt Reynolds style in for, uh, illustrations, like in your apparel or like, you know, crime dog McGruff or something, something like really cheeky humor that has like, you know, a male skew to it into a female space and then expanding it for new context. Or is it, or is it something totally different? Cause a lot of times the market dictates, you know, here's something for a man, here's something for a woman, here's something for, you know, they or something along those lines. What are you, 
making sizes for across the board or are you really doing this for women? Is that an, an off color question? No, not at all. I mean, I think that for me, women have always been who I think of first, like that's who I've thought about doing it for. But the concept of gender has changed so much in these last few years, a number of years, really. And I think that it's become such a triggering thing. And I think fashion has changed. Like, I, I've always worn, I've always worn men's stuff too, but, and I want to continue to wear men's stuff, but oftentimes I get it altered or hemmed to fit me right. But I, I think it's because nobody's ever really thought about women wearing clothes that men like to wear. Like they've never sort of made the, the hybrid of like a men's style for a woman. Like we don't always want to wear tight things. We always don't want to wear, you know, materials that are stretchy and thin. And, you know, sometimes like, I want to wear a really heavyweight hoodie and it's really difficult to find in the woman's space because they're all soft and heathered and washed and, you know, and so I think it's just about having more option and also having really good intentional design behind it because oftentimes the design feels like an afterthought in those spaces when it's done for a woman. Does that make right. sense? No, for sure. Have you ever thought about doing um, a men's collection or has that opportunity ever been presented to you? The opportunity has never been presented to me and I've thought about it. I just haven't had enough um, sort of momentum behind it to pursue it. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, I, I think that selfishly, I'd yeah. love to, th I'd love to see that or just, you know, get some oversized well, gear. Yeah. It's interesting because a lot of our stuff actually is pretty oversized now. And we are like our, the amount of male customers we have now has increased more than it ever has in the past. So that's kind of cool. A lot of this stuff can really go both ways. Yeah, no, I agree. Like, yeah, I remember like before the pandemic, I did stop into into the location on Fairfax and I was like, oh yeah, I could fit in all this stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you know, uh, I, I, I love the, the look and feel of it too. Um, yeah, so, like a lot of people ask, they're like, can men wear these hoodies? And I'm like, yeah, yeah it's a hoodie. And then, so I was so happy we like Anthony Davis has been wearing our sweatsuits. And so I just post them like, see, it's like the most manly man. Like if he can wear, it, dudes can on wear it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, oh, do we ever hear more about the Dubray? About the Dubray oh yeah. Story? It was just two thirty for 23 for Jordan's 23. Oh, okay. Oh, well, love that we found the scoop. Yeah. But, Oh, that was the story. I sorry, I just texted Paul, who um, worked at Jordan at the time, and he was telling me it didn't look great. It didn't look one hundred percent lined up with the two thirty because the watch hands connected with the markers. So we yeah. just changed a little a little bit to two thirty three, so it looked better aesthetically. Oh. oh, and then also the three plus three was the six rings. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, that that sounds very Jordany. The three plus three. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Uh, we just got an exclusive here on the pod. Um, so last couple questions. Um, so uh, you have a love for basketball, right? And also you're a self-proclaimed uh, diehard Lakers fan. So I have a couple of questions in terms of uh, what do you think is a missed opportunity for the WNBA? Um, I, you know, I think that that brand has so much room to really, uh, to, you know, to, to become the juggernaut that it could be. If you had your hands on the WNBA brand, what would you do with it? Oh my God. Well, it's interesting that you asked this. I don't know enough about it to say anything, but I did recently have a meeting with this woman who was running a marketing and sponsorship department for one of the WNBA teams in the league. And she was telling me that this particular team was the only team that had a sponsorships department. And I was like, what do you mean? And um, I, so none of the teams, none of the WNBA teams have, I don't know if it's because of lack of resources, but none of them have 
um, sponsorship department. So there's nobody that's going out on their behalf and speaking to brands and having brands come in and sponsor the players or the teams for different things, which I feel like is a huge missed opportunity because the NBA, I mean, that's all it is. It's like one big commercial. There's so many brands that put in like millions and millions and millions of dollars into them. Like if you go to a Laker game, there's just ad after ad after ad of different brands that sponsor everything. No, totally. You have LeBron um, with his tequila brand under his chair. Like that's. A yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, well, and that's LeBron's personally, but there's team ones, you know, that they show on the screen during halftime or that they run across. It's just everywhere. So I feel like, um, I would love to see more, um, you know, just more manpower on the, in, on the inside, like trying to get them deals like this, like more strategic thinkers within the WNBA that are willing to go work there and bring these kinds of opportunities to them and establish these kinds of departments and grow better infrastructures. Yeah, makes sense. Also, when will the Laker Nation get used to hearing the name Crypto.com Arena? Have you, are you used to that yet? Yeah, the, the crypto name is different. Like, hey, we're heading to the crypt. You know? <laughs> heading, okay. Yeah, heading to crypto.com arena. Doesn't sound yeah. as good as Staples. No, I know. And I missed the Staples colors, weirdly. It's um, the crypto colors are now blue, like a dark blue and something. And I just missed that red. I don't know. There's something about it. Weird. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. All right. So, uh, all right, Melody, this has been an amazing conversation. Like, thank you so much for your time. I know we're, we're just slightly over. Um, I would love to hear a little bit about like, what do you have coming up next? Anything coming down the line that our listeners would can look forward to more? I know there are more collections with Foot Locker and also your brand itself, but uh, what do you have coming up? Oh my God. I don't know if there's anything that I could talk about yet. Um, but there is more collections coming up. There's a lot of stuff coming up in spring. So um, that'll be exciting. All right. All, all secrets, but all, I'm sure amazing things to come. For sure. Melody Asani, thank you so much for the time. Uh, yeah, appreciate you. And also best of luck with everything over in LA. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you guys. So that was amazing. I want to thank Melody for dropping by. I love that conversation. And thank you for listening. You can find the First Generation Burden podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcast content. Please rate us and drop a review. It helps the algorithm. Go to firstgenburden.com for all the episodes. On Instagram, we're at firstgenburden. And you can find me, your host, at rich underscore T-U. Check out the OG Magazine, issue five. That's right, we're doing more of these. Link in the description also, a little preview of next week, we have Ben and Bobby Hundreds, another collab with OG Magazine, and we talk about the metaverse, so come back for that. Uh, thanks to the Des Jin team for their support. Thanks to you, the listener. Be safe, everyone. Bye.